Hey everybody, this is Pastor Dan Jackson with Jacob's Well Church. Due to the spread of the coronavirus, on Sunday, March 22nd, 2020, we started posting online video Sunday virtual church services. The audio you are about to listen to is taken from the video footage of one of those virtual church services. Our hope and prayer is that through this message, God would minister to you, draw you closer to himself, and strengthen you to live for his glory. To watch videos of our church services, or to connect to Jacob's Well Church, or to just get more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, good morning once again. Uh, my name is Pastor Jonathan. Uh, welcome to my home again this week. Uh, I'm delighted and honored to be opening and diving into God's Word with you uh, this week. For the past three weeks, uh, Pastor Dan has been leading us through a very close look at the gospel, uh, the resurrection, and some of the implications of these historical realities. This week, uh, we, we return to where we left off in 1 Corinthians, and today we'll be taking a closer look uh, at 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, a question that I'd like you to consider as we look into these things, and especially in light of where we've been the past three weeks, in light of the gospel and the resurrection, the hope that we have in Christ, how then should we live? Uh, in other words, what does it look like to live out the gospel of grace? As we come into uh, 1 Corinthians 6, I think that one of the main questions Paul is trying to answer is this question. What does it look like? to live out this gospel, the gospel of grace. In light of God's grace to you, as demonstrated in the gospel, that is the good news of what Jesus has done for you in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. In light of this, how then should you live? Well, it's with that that I'd like us to come uh, to God's word and to look at these verses from 1 Corinthians 6. And I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 11, if you'd like to read along with me. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask uh, for grace to understand these words. We know that they are from you. They are a gift from you. They are a measure of your grace. They are the only rule for faith and for living out the gospel of grace. And so we pray by your spirit, would you grant us understanding today that we might know more of who you are and be able to live in light of that reality today and every day moving forward, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, I got a really bad blister on my right foot. At least that's what I thought it was. Uh, We had been down in Florida for the wedding of one of my brothers. Uh, During the trip, we did all kinds of things. We went deep sea fishing. We got seasick. We swam in a pool that had a very rough bottom, uh, and my feet got scraped up a bit. Uh, We also played sand volleyball on a very shelly beach. Uh, At one point, uh, I also jumped into the intercoastal waterway to rescue a lost volleyball. Well, I was not surprised at all uh, when I noticed what looked like a blister that showed up on my right foot. Uh, And one night, not long after we had returned from Florida, I woke up in a sweat uh, and with a terrible pain in my right foot. In fact, it was so bad that I moaned and I tossed and turned all night long. Uh, When I woke up the next day, my right foot was so swollen that I couldn't even put a shoe on it. And after much encouragement from my lovely wife, I made an appointment with a foot doctor, a podiatrist. Well, later that week, the podiatrist diagnosed me with gout and gave me medication. I was a little surprised to hear that I had gout. I mean, I was in my late 20s. I didn't eat much red meat. I hardly drank wine. But what did I know? All I knew is that I had this terrible blister on my right foot and was in a lot of pain. Well, I started taking the gout medication. And after a few more nights of terrible pain, loud moaning, and intense swelling in my right foot, we decided that the medicine wasn't working. So back to the podiatrist I went. This time, I saw a different doctor, and he was very, very concerned. Uh, He immediately had some blood work drawn. Uh, He sent me to have an MRI done that night. And the next morning, he called me. I remember it was a Saturday. And he said, we need to do a surgical procedure on your foot as soon as possible. You have a very, very bad staph infection. And in fact, if we don't cut out part of your foot right now, you could lose possibly your whole foot, or worse, if it spreads, it could be fatal. Now, how's that for the start to your weekend? In one week's time, I went from thinking I had a small, annoying blister on my right foot to finding out that it was only a symptom that revealed a much, much bigger problem, a problem that could have been fatal if left unchecked. You see, much like the doctor who, after looking at the report of my symptoms and tests, determined that I had a far greater problem in need, the Apostle Paul does something similar in our passage today. And like a skilled surgeon, Paul addresses a problem he has heard about and simultaneously addresses the greater problem revealed through this symptom. Well, what is the problem? Well, Paul tells us in verse 1, he says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? You see, apparently Paul had heard a report that the followers of Jesus in Corinth were suing one another in the public courts in order to settle their disputes. 
Now, when one considers the cultural context in which they lived, it does make sense that they were tempted to do this. It was very common. It was socially acceptable. In fact, in ancient Roman societies, individuals pursued litigation against one another in the courts all the time. And so, like the followers of Jesus in Corinth, we too may be tempted to adopt our culture's way of doing things. They were. Uh, We may be tempted to adopt our culture's way of handling our differences, our disputes, and our grievances. may look a little differently than they did it, but we too can be tempted to follow the culture's way of doing things instead of living out the gospel of grace. We can be tempted to live out the misguided values and priorities of our culture. In the case of the followers of Jesus in Corinth, instead of living out the gospel of grace, they had continued living out the cultural priority of getting back at others who hurt you. Practically speaking, in this case, Paul points out, they were bringing lawsuits against one another. Now, these lawsuits were mostly related to non-criminal property cases, uh, personal grievances, uh, losses, uh, where restitution was demanded. Now, if you're like me, you're probably not very familiar with the ancient Roman legal system, and uh, so it might be helpful to understand how this kind of thing worked. Uh, In ancient Roman law, the process looked something like this. An individual, who would be called the plaintiff, would approach a defendant in public and would call for him to come to court to settle a non-criminal matter, uh, such as a property dispute or a grievance, maybe over a civil transaction. Uh, So, for example, uh, hey, you sold me a fishing boat and nets, but after the first week out on the water, the nets broke and the boat sprung a leak. I'm suing you, taking you to court, because you owe me money now for lost income and uh, and livelihood and so forth. Uh, Maybe a more modern example might be a family that is disputing an inheritance and how to divide up the property and assets. Well, if the defendant, uh, the accused, you might say, refused, he could be forced to go to court. And of course, all of this was very public then. Uh, Not like it is now where you can file these things and it's not very public. There, it was very, very public. They would do this in the public square. And if there was sufficient grounds for the lawsuit, uh, as as determined by the magistrate, uh, they would appoint a judge who was a layman, prominent layman of uh, of the city, and he would decide the case. Now, if the defendant refused to pay the fine or make restitution within a certain period of time, he could be brought by force to the magistrate, then his property could be seized, he could be made slave to the plaintiff to work off the debt or property claim. Now, it's important to keep in mind this fact. For the defendant, this whole process was humiliating, embarrassing, and costly. Now, why would they sue one another? What was the ultimate goal of these civil lawsuits in the Roman uh, legal system in Corinth, in this society? Well, one commentator notes this. He says, the person who sues another person is bent on obtaining under cover of law that party's financial resources. He's intent on winning the case regardless of the damaging effect the trial may have on the defendant. The parties involved in lawsuits were motivated by greed, impatience, revenge, hostility, and obstinacy. And Paul observes that this kind of thing was happening even among the Christians, among the followers of Jesus in Corinth. Now, I want to be clear about something. I want to be clear about what Paul is not saying here. I don't think Paul has criminal matters in mind. 
Those were to be handled uh, by the courts, uh, of course. I also don't think that Paul had other matters in mind related to the state, like taxes, regulations, licensing, and so forth. Uh, Paul is not saying that the state's public courts are useless and without purpose. And we know that if we look at a couple other places in Scripture, like Romans 13, you can see that Paul sees government and state courts as an instrument of God's justice in the world. Uh, We also see in Acts 25, Paul appeals to Caesar as a Roman citizen, uh, which meant that he would have to go stand trial in public court in Rome. And so I don't think Paul is diminishing the place of state courts. What he is trying to do is make a case about how should we handle our affairs as Christians, especially when we have disagreements. I also don't think, uh, just to be clear, that Paul is saying Christians cannot ever sue others or make use of state courts. Uh, For example, and I came by this by talking to a friend who's a lawyer, uh, who's a Christian follower of Jesus, and I asked him, hey, is it ever okay? And he said, you know, in some cases, an injured party may sue an insured party, so someone who has insurance, as a way of obtaining an insurance settlement. Uh, It's a way to bring that insurance company to the table, you might say. He said that's why we pay for insurance in reality, is so that they might be able to uh, cover losses if someone is injured. And so suing someone in that case is really just a way of bringing an insurance company to the table to talk. Uh, And I don't think Paul is saying you can't do that. Of course, in that day, it wasn't an issue. I don't think you're breaking breaking biblical principles uh, today to do that, is what Paul says. So what is Paul saying? Uh, Paul is saying this, when you take your disputes, be it over property, uh, individual grievances, uh, personal injury claims, you might say, family disagreements, and other non-criminal matters before the state for the purpose of getting back at the other person who might have hurt you, for the purpose of seeking to get what you think you deserve from them, seeking possibly to ruin them, to humiliate them, you have failed to understand and live out the gospel of grace. Instead, you are giving the world an opportunity to ridicule Christ and divide his church. Now, why is it a problem for followers of Jesus to settle their disputes like this? Well, Paul gives us three main reasons, and this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today uh, when we look at these things in our passage. And he gives us three main reasons based on what I'm calling grace realities. And we see in the the words here, in the passage here, that he gives us three grace realities in the past, one in the past, uh, one in the present, and one in the future yet to come. And we're going to start in the order he does, which he starts in the future. And he says in the first place, consider what by God's grace you will be in the future. Paul says to consider what by God's grace you will be in the future. If we look at verse 2, he says this, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that you are going to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to in this life? You see, what Paul is speaking about here is the promised future authoritative position that followers of Jesus are to hold. He is reminding the Christians in Corinth that on the last day, the judgment day, The saints of the world, the saints of Jesus, that is believers, those who follow Christ, those who trusted in him, they will judge the world. They will be given a position of authority to co-reign with Christ 
and take part even in the final judgment of the world. Now, this might sound strange. It might sound odd, and it, it, it is a little odd and strange. It's hard to understand what does that look like exactly, but we know that it's biblical. It's not a new teaching. In fact, Jesus taught that believers would be judges at the end of time. If you look at Matthew 19 and verse 28, uh, Jesus says, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Meaning to say that believers will hold some sort of co-reigning authoritative position with Christ judging the world. We see something similar in Revelation 20 uh, when John says he saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed, that is, believers. Uh, we even see this in the Old Testament. Uh, there's a, a place in Daniel. Uh, you may remember we went through Daniel last fall. And in Daniel 7 and verse 22, it says that judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. That is to say that the believers in Christ, those who trusted in the promise of the Christ yet to come, those who have trusted in Jesus, uh, you are given a seat of judgment. Uh, that is, you are to sit in a seat of judgment and judge the world. Now, I'll admit, I don't exactly know what the particulars of this future role of believers will look like. But what I do know is that followers of Jesus will one day be victorious over their enemies, over the enemies of God, and enjoy the honor of ruling with Christ after he returns. And because of this, Paul says to followers of Jesus today, since in the future you are going to have authority to judge the whole world, I think you're competent today to settle these trivial matters, these disputes that by comparison to eternity are rather trivial. The point is this, if you can remember what you will be in the future, it ought to give you perspective in the present. If you can remember what you will be in the future, it ought to give you perspective in the present. I'm reminded of a time in high school uh, when I was selected for the Missouri State Choir. I went to a small high school, and I was the first in the history of the school to be selected for the state choir. So it was, it was kind of an honor, kind of a privilege. Uh, it, it was kind of known among the, at least all the music students and so forth that I was going to be doing this. And there was about a two-month uh, period of time between the time that I was selected, I did the auditions and so forth, and was selected to go to the state choir, and when the state choir would actually meet and then, and then perform the concert. And during this two-month period, something really interesting happened. Uh, I became a little better student. Uh, I goofed off a little less. I paid a little closer attention. I even was much more aware of those who were watching me, especially other musicians, other uh, choir members, and so forth. Well, now, what happened to me? My daily behavior, my daily attitude began to reflect the honor and privilege of the position that I was promised in the state choir. I was suddenly aware of the fact that I was representing our school. I was representing others, and they were watching me in light of that future reality. Friends, I want to ask you, how would it affect the way you think about your current problems, your current grievances with others, if you were to reflect upon what you will be in the future? Followers of Jesus, how would it change the way you handle yourself when hurt or wronged were you to remember the future position of honor and privilege you were promised by God's grace. Would you be a little more gracious towards those who hurt you? A little more patience, perhaps, with those 
uh, whom you disagree, maybe a little more resolved to seek reconciliation after dispute? Maybe. Not only does the grace reality of your future position inform how you handle disputes, Paul goes on to say that there is a grace reality of the present that ought to inform how you handle yourselves. In fact, he gives us three present grace realities. And the first one we see in verse four, he says this. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? The first present grace reality he's talking about here is the church, the gift of the body of Christ the gift of followers of Jesus, brothers and sisters who have been gifted by the Holy Spirit with a whole assortment of gifts. And he is saying that this body, the church, is a gift to you to help you settle disputes. He even goes on in a minute and makes an implication that you can uh, appoint arbitrators or mediators from within the church to help you handle disputes that you and another believer can't seem to handle on your own. Now, I'll note uh, from a commentator, he says this, not every believer at every moment is competent for such matters, but the church as a whole should be able to act. Friends, the church of Jesus Christ, the body of believers, the local church, like Jacob's Wall Church, is a gift to us, a gift to us to help us settle our disputes. I'm going to ask you, are you realizing and utilizing this gift? The second present grace reality that he points out is this. It's in verse 5. He says, I say this is to your shame. Uh, That's meaning that you have taken your disputes, your grievances before uh, the the world, so to speak, instead of before the church. He said, this is to your shame. This is a disgrace. He says, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute uh, between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Uh, What he's trying to say here in this uh, rhetorical question way is that, friends, in the church, you have a gift of true wisdom, true wisdom from above. He's already made this case earlier in 1 Corinthians, and you can read 1 Corinthians 2, where we see this highlighted, even the end of 1 Corinthians 1, where he says that Jesus Christ became to us wisdom from God. And he says, this is a present grace reality for you, friends. In Christ, you have true wisdom, you have true godliness, and you have justice, which only can be found in the gospel. True wisdom, godliness, and justice cannot be found in secular human law. We also know from scripture that grace and truth are found in Jesus, which means that a secular human court that does does not acknowledge the authority of Jesus is actually blind to the truth. So we have the gift of the church. We have the present grace reality of true wisdom. And Paul points out a third present grace reality, and it's in verse 7. He says, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Now, this word defrauded could also be translated as uh, cheating or uh, something to which you feel you're entitled to. And uh, so you're going to go out and, and, in a sense, rob someone else of it, or you feel that someone else has robbed you of it. They are defrauding you. And Paul says, when you take your disputes, your grievances, these trivial matters, when you take them, these matters that have to do maybe with large sums of money even, uh, and you take them to the courts, you take your brother, your sister in the Lord to the court. You have already been defeated just by doing that. Now, why is it a defeat? Well, Paul 
I believe, is trying to make the case that despite what you say you believe about the gospel, when you do this, you defeat the whole purpose of the gospel. Instead of living out the gospel, you are seeking to get back at others. Instead of uh, the calling of the gospel to love even your enemies, you are seeking to go out and, and grab a hold of what you think is rightfully yours and you have to go fight for it. Instead, Paul says, why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded instead of being the defrauder? Why not rather suffer the wrongdoing instead of being the one who is seeking to wrong and get back at another? Now, I think in these words, these two questions, why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? He's giving a little bit of a nod, if you will, to Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And uh, I thought it'd be helpful for us to just read what Jesus says to help us understand what Paul is trying to say. What is the gift that he is pointing out here? And Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 38. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Uh, to be slapped on the right cheek would have been a backhanded slap since most people were right-handed. Uh, if you were punched, closed fist, it would have been on the left side. But to be slapped on the right side would have been a backhanded slap, meaning someone is dishonoring you. And he says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, if someone dishonors you and your name and your reputation publicly, of course, you are to turn to him the other. You are not to defend your honor. And he says, if anyone would sue you, this is Matthew 5, 40. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, what does he say to do? Give him your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. If anyone begs from you, don't refuse the one who would borrow from you. You see, what Jesus is saying and what Paul is saying when he says, why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? They are saying to consider that your honor, your privilege is found somewhere else other than this world. You do not need to receive honor and privilege from this world. And so if those in this world seek to defame you, to defraud you, to wrong you, to dishonor you, you can turn to them the other cheek because you have a greater honor. And this is the third present grace reality, the present gift that Paul is pointing out here. He is saying this, you have already received a gift of greater honor in Christ. You can risk being dishonored in this world because you have a greater honor in him. You can risk being wronged because in Christ you already have victory. You can risk being defrauded and robbed and, and, and cheated in this world because already you have everything you need in Christ. Now consider this as well in the midst of this. When followers of Jesus settled their disputes with one another in the state court system, consider what you're saying. You're saying that you prefer a secular worldview over a biblical one. Uh, remember, the civil court system is not bound by biblical law, but rather by the state's law system. And so this is why Paul refers to it as going to law as before unbelievers or the unrighteous, he says in verse 1. You are saying that you don't think the church is equipped to handle these disputes, which is to say you're calling into question God's care of and for the church and for you. When you take others to court to settle these kinds of disputes, you're saying you prefer the world's authority and justice over God's authority and justice. You are saying that you feel the need to defend your own honor and privileges and rights, even at the expense of another's honor, privileges, and rights. Now, instead of seeking to vindicate your own name 
and honor by publicly dishonoring another, what if you took your matter to the church? What if you considered the gifts God has already given you? What if you considered the honor and privilege you have already received in Christ? How would that change the way you view your conflicts, your grievances, your disputes with one another? Well, on the weekends uh, these days, my family and I try to take in a movie. And uh, we recently, this past weekend, watched a new movie that's just come out on Disney Plus called Onward. And uh, it's about two elf brothers uh, who are living in a magical world, but the magic has dulled and people have forgotten about the magic. And these two elf brothers discover that they have these gifts they didn't realize they had. Uh, and it all starts when they're given a gift from their father, this wizard staff. And uh, the younger brother, Ian, discovers that he is a gifted wizard and he doesn't even know anything about it. Uh, and his older brother, uh, Barley, discovers that his zeal for a better world, his, his hobbies of, of learning about these magical things that most people had written off, were for, for, in fact, actual useful information to help his brother, Ian, unlock his true calling. Un, uh, and, and so using, uh, the point is this, using their previously unknown and underrealized gifts that they already had, they realized that they are more than equipped, better equipped to face their challenges than they thought. Friends, do you realize that followers of Jesus are better equipped than the secular courts to solve disputes between Christians? Do you realize that the gift of the church, the gift of true wisdom, the gift of greater honor in Christ equips you, equips us, the church, to be able to handle these matters and to do it in a, a, a wonderfully loving way? Consider what it would look like if we turned to the church to help us settle our disputes and grievances. What message would we send to the world if we are willing to live out the gospel even in these tough situations? Well, Paul goes on and reminds us that not only is there a future grace reality, uh, a position that you're going to hold one day as a judge of the world, uh, he also has reminded them of a present grace reality, these gifts that we've just talked about. And now he goes on to remind the followers of Jesus of one more grace reality. And he refers to something that has already taken place in the past. And we see it in verse 9. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. And he goes into a list of sin struggles, uh, of, of sin patterns. Uh, and he says, this, neither the sexually, immoral, the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. And I'm going to pause here for a moment and point a couple things out. One, I'm going to point out that next week, uh, Pastor Dan is going to dive much more into some of the details of this, especially verse 9, as it relates to the rest of this passage. And so we're not going to do that today. The second thing I want to point out is Paul is referring to those who are in an unrighteous state or those who are in an unbelieving state and are unrepentant. Uh, he's referring to those who have unrepentant sin patterns, unrepentant sin behaviors, and they are not willing to consider giving them up. They are not wrestling against them. They are not battling against them. They are given over to them. And he says, don't be deceived. Those who are given over into these unrepentant sin patterns, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he reminds the Corinthians, the, the followers of Jesus in this church, and such were some of you. 
Such were some of you, not citizens of God's kingdom. And then, as in a blink of an eye, he reminds them of something that has happened. And he goes on and says, But, a very divine but, you might say, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What he is trying to do here is to say, because of what Christ has done in the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus, the one who died uh, and took the punishment for your sin, the one who rose from the dead on the third day, defeating death and opening the door for life and hope for all who trust in him, the one who rose uh, and ascended to heaven, The Lord Jesus Christ, because of what he has done, you have received God's forgiving grace. You were washed, that is, you were made clean from the inside out. You were sanctified, that is, you were set apart for God. You were made holy, you were made worthy for God. And you were justified. You were declared in God's sight truly good. Truly good. See, Paul is saying here, remember who you were. You were this, not a citizen of God's kingdom. Unrepentant, you were unclean, you were not sanctified, you were not justified in God's sight. But because of what Christ has done, because of his sacrifice and your faith in him, you have been washed and sanctified and justified. And now, You are a grace recipient who has been forgiven and redeemed and made a citizen of God's kingdom. You see, for followers of Jesus, all of this has already taken place. It is a past grace reality that ought to inform how you live today. Well, see, just as the loss of taste and smell, uh, chest tightness, we're all hearing about this, and fever, are symptoms of a greater and more serious problem called COVID-19. So we see here that wronging and cheating and dishonoring others are symptoms of a greater and more serious problem that Paul calls to light here, especially in these last verses. And the, the problem is this, you have failed to understand and live out the gospel of grace. For followers of Jesus, what this means is you have failed to understand and live out who you really are. Back in 1936, in the Summer Olympics in Berlin, Germany, there was a young man, a 19-year-old man named uh, Louis Zamperini. And he ran the fastest 5,000-meter run by any American that year. Now, just five years earlier, if you were to look at Louis, you would see a young man uh, who is wild, who is out of control. Uh, I've been reading his biography uh, called Unbroken. And in the biography, the author points out, he says, uh, she says that Louis uh, was wild and out of control. He socked a girl. He pushed a teacher. He even pelted a policeman with a rotten tomato. Well, what changed in those few years from that moment uh, to when Louis was running the fastest 5,000 meter run by any American in the Berlin Summer Olympics? Well, by the help of his brother, Pete, Louis learned that he was a runner, a gifted runner. In fact, he had a biomechanical uh, hip thing, uh, I guess you could say, a, a way God made him that made him be able to run faster. He was biomechanically gifted for this. 
And at 19 years old, he was the youngest American Olympic qualifier for the 5,000 meter, and he still holds that record today. In that race, uh, the 5,000 meter in the Olympics, he ran an average of 71 seconds per lap, and he beat his personal best by more than eight seconds, clocking in a 14-minute, 46.8-second run. Now, his final time only earned him a seventh-place finish. But in his final lap, he made up more than 50 yards and was clocked at 56 seconds, the fastest final lap ever recorded up to that point in time. Now, that honor earned him a brief meeting with Hitler, who was there that day. And they came over and, and kind of briefly touched hands, and Hitler said, you're the one who had the fast finish. Now, little did Louis know that he had just met the madman, who would lead the world, in part, into one of the greatest wars of the modern era. The same war that would lead to Louis' own suffering, where after crashing at sea in a bombardier plane, he was adrift for 47 days, and then was taken prisoner by the Japanese Navy and was held captive, severely beaten, and mistreated for over two years until the end of the war in 1945. Now, after the war, Louis suffered from alcoholism and nightmares where he dreamed he was strangling his captors and they haunted him. In 1949, after much encouragement from Louis's wife, he attended a Billy Graham crusade and he heard the gospel message of forgiveness, of grace, of Jesus who died on a cross to pay for your sins and to allow you Uh, to be forgiven so that you can forgive. And at that crusade, Louis committed his life to following Jesus and became an evangelist. And he even began championing the message of forgiving grace through Jesus Christ. Because of this gospel, because of the gospel of grace at work in his life, he forgave his captors. He even went back in 1950 and led a, a convoy of those who were forgiving prisoners. And by God's grace, the nightmare ceased. Changed by the gospel of grace, Louis began to live out the gospel of grace. You see, friends, only the gospel of grace and forgiveness in Jesus can offer you respite from your worst nightmares, your greatest fears, your greatest turmoil. Friends, if you have not rested and received the grace of Jesus who lived who died and rose from the dead to offer forgiveness and life to weary, troubled souls, will you consider doing so today? Followers of Jesus, consider the grace realities of your position in the future, of the gifts God has given you in the present, the church, uh, wisdom, uh, and a greater honor. Consider the forgiving redemption accomplished in the past. And I want to ask you, are you living out the gospel of grace? the gospel of grace that you're benefiting from? What changes do you need to make in your thinking, your attitude, or your behaviors? Whom do you need to seek to forgive? Whom do you need to seek that you maybe have wronged? Whom maybe you have sought to dishonor? Whom do you need to uh, uh, extend an olive branch, so to speak, and let go of a past grievance or dispute? Consider this, follower of Jesus, you are equipped to live out the gospel, to be who you are in light of what you were and who you will be one day. 
And Paul gives thanks for this. And he says it in 1 Corinthians 1.4. And I say this to you. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Won't you consider living out the gospel of grace today? There really is no better way to live. Would you pray with me? Oh, gracious God, we thank you for the gifts of grace you have given us. And we thank you that you have equipped us to live this out. And I pray, O oh God, that as we have been changed, that we might consider how the gospel of grace affects the way we live. That there really is no better way to live. Lord, I pray that this would affect the way that we handle our disputes. And that if we can't agree, Lord, help us to turn to the church, the gifts you've given us, Lord, the people you've put in our lives. And find that there is hope. And find that the gospel opens a better way. We love you, O Lord, our strength. And we pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen. And now, receive the Lord's benediction, the Lord's blessing to you, friends. Wherever you're sitting right now, or standing, or driving and listening to this, consider these words now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, amen. I hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next week.